Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 362 is recorded live March 22nd, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. We have some bulbs coming up, so I think we are getting to what we would call that almost spring. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. And I'm, and you know, we're looking for rain and snow this weekend. Snow? Don't say snow. I don't want to hear about snow. That's in the forecast. Oh, yeah, because... Did, have we had any since the weekend? I don't. I think it's been fairly clear. It, it has been, but in the shadow of the pole barn, a little building out to my left, there's still snow on the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and oh. it was chilly doing my walk today. Yeah, that's a little a little cooler than you'd like, but yeah, I guess that's what we have to expect by living in Michigan. So I wouldn't wouldn't want to fall in the water right now. No, but uh, March twenty second. Uh, and this is about the earliest that we have gotten on Lake Michigan, actually out on a wreck. So uh, from this time, it's like T-plus for Great Lake diving. Uh, well, several people got their boat started uh, this week already, oh. and we're looking for who wants to be the first on a wreck. Yeah. I, I, and that's, did you see the postings for that already or not? No, I haven't. I've I've kind of deliberately stayed off Facebook trying to get, <laughs> be able to keep stuff going moving and so you got plans for saturday and sunday already looking for people to go hither and yon oh goodness i yeah i like we were talking before show uh you know the the team the robotics team is doing good and yeah i don't know i may maybe maybe i as i say that but you know it, it can't be saturday it can't be sunday so i'm, I'm just running out of time to be able yeah. to go uh well i'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room we have a few people this week. We have Eric and Karen, and uh, I see there's a few people online. I don't know if they can hear us or not. It's a few other people, so. Yeah, you had Ted and Arf. Yeah, Arf. I'm, I'm, if we find that, that's, that's where it sounds. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that's how I would say it. I'm, I'm thinking that might be somebody's uh, initials, maybe. Well, it could be I-A-R-F. Yeah, I'm not even going to guess what sta- that stands for. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We'll get that out of the way. The first article we have up is a spike in snorkeling-related drownings prompts a snorkeling safety workshop. We have covered over the last few weeks, especially in Hawaii, that they were concerned with the number of deaths that were happening in snorkeling that they felt was abnormally high, and some were attributing it to some of the full face masks. Uh, Those are the snorkels that fit over the whole face and uh, allow many people who who might not otherwise snorkel to give it a try. Uh, and this article's out of uh, Honolulu, k h o n two dot com, one of one of the local stations there. And they're asking, is there any way to prevent snorkeling related drownings? Uh, this is prompted by the Hawaiian Lifeguard Association. Recent spikes in death directly linked to snorkeling is raising concerns. Lifeguards are holding a workshop 
Wednesday, March 28th, to educate people and devise a plan. Snorkeling drownings are not unusual. We've had them for years before the spike, but I think the dramatic increase in numbers has gotten people's attention, said Ralph Godo. Gatto? Godo? Go, in, in programming code, it's G-O-T-O, which would be go-to. Uh, Goto was a lifeguard for more than 30 years and helping coordinate the workshop. The more information we can get about what's going on, I think it's going to help us craft some prevention stuff. And that's the ultimate goal is preventing these things from happening. On average, there are 17 snorkeling-related deaths each year in Hawaii. There have been 14 so far in 2018. A majority of them occurred on Maui. What is causing the spikes? No one really knows. We have 65 drownings a year in the state in the ocean. You can't say what caused it. You can say what they were doing, but we really don't have a direct correlation at this point. The deaths are not caused by the snorkel, but that's what people are doing when they have a problem. According to Gatto, there are countless assumptions. There's theories related to equipment. There's theories related to inexperience, pre-existing medical conditions, people getting off the plane after a long plane ride. The snorkeling safety workshop will discuss numerous topics. We're going to have a panel of experts in the morning talk about snorkeling physiology, snorkeling-related deaths, ed- epidemiology. Oh, that's a an- yes. Thank you, Karen. Uh, <laughs> in-, in the afternoon. We're going to allow people to actually get in water and try some of this stuff out. Uh, They also intend to educate people. Snorkeling seems to be simple and so beautiful and so easy. It's not. It's a strenuous activity, and people need to understand that. Another topic of discussion, full face masks. Sean Schuster, manager at Aaron's Dive Shop, said the full face masks are comfortable and easy to use. He demonstrated one manufactured by head. Air comes in through the top, and every time you breathe, you get air through these valves at the top and exhale at the bottom. Schuster said, pointing to each point on the full face mask, nice thing is it, it causes a forming seal around the whole face. It's less likely to flood. The snorkel actually has a dry valve on the top as well. Schuster said the equipment isn't the problem. I do think we are seeing people who maybe shouldn't be out in the water in the first place wearing more masks like these. Schuster said he thinks the problems with people using cheap knockoffs, but with the higher-end equipment, the masks like Head are safe. In an email, Head manufacturer stated, Head and its sister company, Mares, have 70 years of experience in developing and manufacturing scuba regulators, masks, and other technical dive equipment for recreation, military, and professional use. They strive to meet the highest demands of their customers while simultaneously bringing the safest products to market. The Snorkeling Safety Workshop will be held March 28th, 2018 at 8 a.m. through 4:30 p.m. at the Hilton Hawaiian Village Rainbow Suite and Duke. No, oh, I'm not that some Hawaiian name lagoon. <laughs> Contact Ralph Gatto and uh, we'll have links to this in the show notes if you're interested. They said there's a registration fee, $75 includes the breakfast and lunch. And I would go other than the what probably $3,000 plane ticket <laughs> to get out there. I checked a couple of other sites on the same topic. Uh-huh. And some people want to blame the mask. I mean, no matter what you're saying, it's got to be the mask fault. Right. Uh, they did studies, and depending on what group you look at and what their objective is, one, the number of death of people wearing full face was not predominant uh, of the ones who dropped. It was only a couple. Oh, yeah, because yeah, some of the earlier indications is like all the deaths were the full face mask. Right, and there were not. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the majority were the normal mask and manual snorkel type. Yeah. The other aspect that people want to blame is, well, they're, they're breathing too hard and you're getting a CO2 buildup. And what people don't realize is you can get a CO2 buildup in a snorkel, especially if you've got a nice big barrel. Mm-hmm. Right? Not saying it's not an issue with maybe a knockoff, but by the same token, 
it's hard to, you know, why are you going to badmouth all of them until you know that's an issue and what to look for in a knockoff that's not the same. So they need to watch for that, I think. Another one was saying, well, it's hard to take the mask off in uh, an emergency. Well, because it's too tight. The strapping is really good. Well, you know that we've got some. You have one, matter of fact. Yeah. I don't think you've used it yet. No, I haven't put uh, mine on. I've, I've used mine multiple times trying to do some fast swimming to see if I could out-breathe it. Mm-hmm. Find the difference in the resistance and chest resistance between that and my regular mask. And if you compare the two, when you immerse your chest in the water, you get a different, it takes more effort to breathe. Right. Whether regular snorkel or the mask. Uh, as far as too tight on the head, just like your mask, if you wear it properly and it fits you well, your, your strap is not tight that when you take it off, you have the strap, you know, where you had it pressed against your face, mask mm-hmm. squeeze. You don't yeah. have that. The same with the full face. You can take that off. I, you know, panically, it's like I don't have it reefed on so it's glued to my head. You know, you t- under the chin, pull it straight off. It comes off. So I, I don't understand this part where you panic and can't get it off. But it'll be interesting to see the other result. And like they said, you know, what really is causing it, it remains to be seen. So I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and say the full face is bad. I've, the one I've got I like works fine. No issues at this point. You know, I think maybe what we need to do is is uh, get some video cameras and GoPros and head to the pool and, you know, give these things a, a good try out under, under well, controlled conditions. Well, we used them up there at the uh, Mary Freebed Clinic. Mm-hmm. Those are available for people to use, and some people huff and puff. And that one little gal, I mean, just like a torpedo, and she sure as heck didn't have any problem with CO2 yeah. buildup. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, they'll have that, what's that, next week? Trying to figure out and do, do the math. So, yeah, just a little bit under a week, probably about the time you hear this, that will have happened or gone on. But we'll, we'll have to see. Keep an eye on it. But, uh, you know, then we see the same thing in scuba diving. You seem to have these rashes of incidents that appear to be unrelated. And a lot of time it's just, uh, or many times, it's people out of shape. It's your, it's your time to go. You know, if you're if you're above water, well, that's one thing, but if you're underwater, they blame the gear. Well, it's like, you know, I've been diving 50 years-ish, maybe a little more. You know, and if they say, well, he was a diver. Well, 50 yeah. years plus, how many is how old? What's that old fossil doing in the water anywhere? <laughs> we don't say that to your face. To my face. <laughs> I, I don't know. Somebody was commenting about if I fart dust. I don't know. Does that mean I'm old? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I think my wife would prefer if that's what I did. Uh so this next article we have, uh, is, this, is this the next one on our list? The officials list? Yeah, the one about the... The Marine Sanctuary? The yeah, sanctuary. This, this is, yes. yeah, this is a follow-up. So this one, yeah. uh, last week we talked about the uh, governor of Wisconsin who rescinded support for a NOAA plan to set up a preserve in Wisconsin. Port officials, uh, Port Washington officials on Tuesday urged area residents to write their state and federal officials in an attempt to get Governor Scott Walker to change his decision and once again nominate the lake from Port Washington to Two Rivers as a marine shipwreck sanctuary. What we need now is to reopen the dialogue with Walker. Mayor Tim, was that Malata, told the Common Council Tuesday, we don't consider this a death knell. We believe this sanctuary designation represents significant opportunity in the area and the state, and is really the reality is the impact is far-reaching. There is a world of potential. Hopefully we can let the governor know that there's still a very strong support for this, said Port Washington Tourism Council Executive Directory, Director Kathy Tank. 
While the proposed sanctuary has been touted as a tourism magnet in the area and a way to protect shipwrecks, thanks to the benefits go far beyond that. It brings in federal resources that never in a million years would otherwise have access to, she said, including capital investment, education opportunity, research, and jobs. There's so many more benefits that than just protecting the wrecks, which is why so many people seem to think it's all about. Divers aren't the only ones who benefit, Tank said, noting one purpose of the sanctuary designation is to bring the stores and, and sites to ev- to, on the lake of the lake to everyone. Federal resources could help the state find additional wrecks in the area, added Tish Hayes, co-owner of Port Deco Divers, a sanctuary designation by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, had bipartisan support from the state and federal legislature legislators and officials believe the approval of the sanctuary is just a month away, something Walker's March 6 announcement stopped in its tracks. Noting the sanctuary effort started in the communities that would be impacted, not from federal government, Mulata said, I really believe the process is representative government at its best. The mayors of the four communities most impacted by sanctuary, Port, Sheboygan, Manitowoc, and Two Rivers are urging residents to contact their state and federal officials and even county supervisors pressure the government to reopen talks about the sanctuary so his concerns can be addressed. Thanks said she has a template for letter area residents can send to legislatures, and people may obtain it by emailing her. Uh, blue, yellow and blue Save Our Sanctuary buttons and stickers have been created for people to wear in support of the effort. Well, let's go back. Who is this person, this tank? Now, I Washington, did that earlier. Port, Port Washington Tourism Council Executive Director Kathy Tank. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because w- I licked this over, and I don't want to be Debbie Downer or Don the Downer, <laughs> especially since I do work with you guys on the Southwest Michigan preserve. Underwater Preserve. Yep. Question number one: What's the difference between a sanctuary and a preserve? I'll leave that alone for a second. Second item is: Sanctuary is touted as being a tourist magnet or a tourism magnet. Okay, if you didn't have a sanctuary, are you still going to have the divers come? Yes. Why? Because of the shipwreck. So. Being a sanctuary does not increase that as a tourism spot. Number two, a way to protect shipwreck. The question is, how exactly are you protecting the shipwreck? Are you physically protecting it? You're not. Mother Nature has her way. The only thing that's advantageous to having a preserve or a sanctuary is having the buoy systems to avoid having to drag your anchor through the wreck. Does that sound logical to you and correct? I I can't argue with anything that's you said. That's what we're trying to do, correct? Yeah, that's what we're trying to get the boys, and they cost money. Yeah, and I'm coming back to that. I love the part where they say, and it brings in federal resources. What that means is it brings in money that they consider free because they don't have to spend it from the state. That's not free because that came from me and you and everybody else. So I dislike that term free money because it isn't. Why is it any different for the educational opportunities than without the sanctuary? Is it because you'll have a structured group of people who are getting paid by somebody? to tell you more about the wrecks that you know are already there? Not sure. Does research, you need a sanctuary or preserve to do research on shipwrecks? I don't think so. Now, if you're an archaeologist, you're not going to do it for free. You're getting it funding. You're going to get your grant from state or hopefully federal. Jobs, how is a sanctuary or preserve going to give them any more jobs than if you just have good boats to take you out for the dives? They're still going to buy the gas. They're going to stay in the lodging. They're going to buy food. So, again, I don't know how being a sanctuary makes a difference on that aspect. And then they said, well, the purpose of the sanctuary designation is to bring the stories and sights of the lake to everyone. Well, every diver that goes and dives shares that knowledge. 
Many of the people who look, like to look for, search, and research, research the wrecks, write their books, their articles, you have that same publicity. So how does that make it better for the other people? I, I really didn't see any backup for that. And I love the part where it said federal resources can help the state find additional wrecks. What wreck did the state ever go out to look for? And how can they justify spending money to go look for a wreck? Because it sure didn't happen here in Michigan. So I, I looked at that and I, I heard what they said. But to me, it's I want money from the state, from the federal government to do things that were going to happen anyway. Just open other people's comments now. It'd be nice to hear something. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the problem with, that I have, even with some of these discussions, is all the actors all have a motive or agenda. So if we look at this this person here, uh, what was her name? Kathy. Uh, breaking up. Am I, am I breaking up? Yeah. So uh, this, uh, I want to get her full name, Kathy Tank. And she's from the Port Washington Tourism. So I'm assuming that that's a paid role that she has for Port Washington and her desires to get more tourism. So anything that allows her to achieve her mission better than it would otherwise, she's going to be for. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is the best thing for the community, her position. It means that that's what her job is, and she's going to take advantage of this situation to promote that. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I mean, if I was in her position, I would probably be doing the same thing. But when we see these articles, we have to look at them uh, through that lens of why are people having these particular positions? Uh, and and really what it comes down to is do we think we need more federal preserves? And is the federal preserve going to be adding anything beyond what would otherwise happen? Uh, are you familiar with the air, this area of, of Wisconsin? I mean, because if you look at where the uh, where the NOAA preserve is in Michigan, I mean, there's not a, a huge amount there. I mean, there's some industry, but it's not a large area. Uh, so I'm, you know, other than the facilities, how, how many people are employed up there? I'm not sure how much of a direct impact that's going to have. You know, for, for me, for selfish reasons, I like to have these sort of things. You know, I like to have, you know, marine museums and research go on and stuff. But, you know, if I was you know, the the benevolent ruler looking at all the ways to slice up money. Uh, Priority-wise, I don't know if this is the biggest and best priority that we're using for money. I mean, I see a whole lot of other uh, social issues that could be addressed that may be a little bit more important than some shipwrecks that they're going to be unable to protect. Again, I understand, like, for us, for the preserve, the mainstay right now is to be able to put buoys on them to support people diving them without doing any damage to them. Yeah. Yeah. If you have them buoyed so people know exactly where they are, you will have more people come out there because, hey, I can find it. Yeah, yeah. And, and what Max referring to, I don't think we've talked about it on the show, but uh, the state of Michigan, well, we've talked about the preserves, but the, the specifics, which I'll get to in a second here, is that in the state of Michigan, we have a, I call it a volunteer preserve system. Uh, they created some laws that allow for the establishment of preserves around the state. And in our area, the state of Michigan, it's called the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. And that was originally started by some of the people that are now involved with uh, MSRA, uh, Michigan Shipwrecks uh, Associates. Uh, so we, we've got this preserve system, and, and it's what each of the preserves do is they have a group who sets up bylaws and rules. Uh, they can claim 
land from the shoreland, I think, out to what is considered recreational diving depth or yes. uh, a certain number of miles, whichever is uh, greater. It's, it's 130 feet or five miles, whichever one comes first. Whichever one comes first. Okay. Correct. Uh, and, and the idea is just to create this body that helps maintain and manage these preserves. So instead of having like what NOAA do, would do, which is federal money coming in, you this is all self-funded by volunteers, and they and they operate under these rules that are set up. And the, and the idea was, uh, who's better to manage it than local people? And then each preserve was allowed to sh- sink one shipwreck or object, provided that it has historical bearing and meets all the approval and cleanup requirements and so on. Uh, and... and one thing that the preserves happen is that they, they kind of ebb and flow like any volunteer organization. They have a lot of activity, and then sometimes they die and wane. And, uh, you know, we've been supported uh, supporting the preserve for quite a while. All the the host the web hosting for the preserve uh, I've been taking care of for, you know, probably about as long as the this podcast has been going. Um, and then this last year, we really decided that the, the preserve needed to be kick-started and— uh, so about two months ago, there's a big push to get it going. And uh, in the election of officers, we have Kevin, who was, who was on the program. Uh, he's not on this week. Uh, is the president of the preserve. I'm the vice president. And then there's about four or five other board members. So, you know, I, what we're trying to do, and I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who's part of the preserve, is, is uh, there's an incentive to, I don't even say it's an incentive. We're trying to buoy the shipwrecks. Uh, that's been going on in the preserve system for about four or five years now. And it's a complicated process. It can be expensive, uh, which is which is ironic considering that you're a nonprofit trying to help something out. But there were charges involved with or fees involved with documenting where these buoys were going to be and going through all the paperwork. So the state said, okay, each of the preserves, send us your coordinates. We'll put it together under one permit, and then we'll get that all approved. And that permit is actually running out here. Uh, in the next few months. So the, what we're trying to do in the Southwest Michigan Preserve is get those uh, wrecks buoyed. And the benefit of having those buoys on those wrecks is that instead of people dragging an anchor trying to catch the wreck or uh, unofficial volunteers tying lines and milk jugs to a wreck uh, in you know whatever fashion they choose, is that w- there would be these approved moorings um, you know, for the anchor. It's either a concrete weight or some of the preserves have been approved with using uh, train axles, you know, on, that are on the, the train trucks uh, from the, the rail cars. And there's a certain way you have to buoy it. And then you have to get specific permission from the Coast Guard for the type of buoy you're using on the wrecks, which they then talk to the, who is it, the Coastal Shipping Association also has some say in the matter. Yeah, I'm not sure of the Coastal, the name of the organization, but yeah. there is a one. Yeah. So, and what it comes down to is on the inexpensive side, not involving moving things and buying materials, but the the least expensive you can probably get up for booing it properly is going to be about eight hundred to a thousand dollars. And in many cases, if you have to go with lighted buoys or buoys over a certain size, uh, you can be upwards over two thousand dollars for booing a wreck. And then you have the manpower of putting it out there, getting it out there, getting the people out there putting it up in the spring, taking it down in the fall. So that's a large majority of what the preserves are working on. And then the eventual goal is to get a, a well enough funded and operating organization so we can sink some of these dive sites that we would like to see. At least that's my, my selfish motivation is 
I want something big to dive on. Uh, can I add a couple of comments here? Certainly. Uh, actually, the 1994 is when they started called the uh, Michigan Underwater Preserve Council. Mm-hmm. And back in 94, there were nine at the time, as I recollect, areas designated as preserves throughout Michigan, which were unsupported by any kind of finances from the state or feds. And their purpose was to just that, protect the shipwreck. And at the time, they had like 1,900 square miles. And I believe the current now is we have 12 preserves, and I believe we're reaching 7,000 square miles. And again, all volunteer operations. And you look what has and has not been done in that period of time. And a lot of it is due to funding and graybeards. You may start out enthusiastic, which a lot of us were more, you know, back in 94. How many years is that? <laughs> that's uh, a older. That's a lot of the guys tw- are 20, not, even, are not tw- here anymore. 25 years or so? Almost 25 yeah. years? Yeah. And I don't know if anybody else has had this issue from clubs or organizations trying to get volunteers. It's hard to find people to either serve on committees, work on committees, much less be a diver to go do the, the work. So it's not gotten any easier as the time has gone on, as you would thought we'd have got some experience. Some of the preserves are doing very well. Some of the preserves have some really good water, good depth, and some darn good shipwreck. Mackinac, for example. We go up there and spend a week. Why? They're buoy, they're big, they're deep, they're in pretty decent shape, and we spend our money. Yeah. So I, I just questioned some of the reasons they had as why they need a sanctuary when I'm not seeing the advantage to having that as well as a preserve or just enthusiastic divers who are protecting the environment they're diving in. And they do that because they don't pilfer. I should say pilfer. Up until 86, it was legal to take items off, off of wrecks, and people did. Part of it was because your visibility was three feet, and at the time, no one's going to see it if you didn't bring it up. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. And and when they say pristine shipwreck, I if pristine shipwreck is not one that's got parts and pieces missing and is covered in quag and zebra mussels, yeah. in my estimate. But I, I would, whatever. as a Great Lakes shipwreck diver, I would say that our wrecks are some of the in some of the best shape relative to their age that you'll find anywhere in the world. However... They're they're not pristine. It's not like the the day they went down. Uh, you know, look at the photos. You can say, "Hey, that still looks like a shipwreck." But if you had, if you saw, if you happen to have a photo from back then, if that was possible, uh, you would see that they have broken down quite a bit. You know, the decks are are collapsing. Uh, they they splayed open. You know, storms and ice do a heck of a lot of damage to these wrecks. So Mother Nature, on her own, is going to do it. So you might say that. Uh, you know, we somebody might make the argument that we need to document these and take photos and stuff, but that that can happen with or without the the funding of the federal government. Well, you got the other aspect too. You know, you've got I just lost my train of thought there for a second, but the advent of the better visibility does increase the diver visibility and wanting to go look at something because you can actually. See. But again, that was not through any effort by any person. It was because we had an invasive species come in and help us out. Yeah. And that's some of these photos that are, are doing a great job at promoting these wrecks would not have been possible 20 years ago. Well, I mean, and if you've got some comments or feedback or, you know, think we're just full of it, you know, go ahead and leave, uh, leave us a message. You can, you know, email us at the show at scubaobsessed.com. You can go to our contact us form, uh, Facebook page, tweet us on Twitter at scubaobsessed. Give us some feedback. You know, we're, we're willing to listen. 
Uh, I don't necessarily know if you're, if you know, you, you, this is borderline politics. I don't know. Do you ever actually change anybody's mind? To me, it, it comes down to, you know, needs and wants. And this, this isn't necessarily a need. This is more of a want. And I just think that we've got things that are higher priority. And it's really an overlapping uh, opportunity, which I think is why the governor of Wisconsin uh, decided not to do it. Is that, you know, why six, why, uh, grant the federal government additional authority and just make a bureaucracy that you now have a harder time moving through. Now, we we we, we kind of squeezed as much as we could out of that article. Uh, the next one is uh, we've got Paul Allen continuing, continuing to find shipwrecks. Wouldn't you love to have his checkbook? The USS uh, sure. <laughs> Juno warship that sank with 600 aboard is discovered four kilometers down in the Pacific. An expedition to South Pacific funded by Microsoft co-founder and philanthropist Paul Allen has discovered the wreck of a famous U.S. warship that was attacked by a Japanese during the Second World War, claiming more than 600 lives. The billionaire's personal search team located the remains of the USS Juno off the coast of the Solomon Islands on St. Patrick's Day. The Juno was sunk by Japanese torpedoes in November 1942, claiming the lives of 687 men, including five brothers known as the Sullivans from Waterloo, Iowa, the men became Navy heroes and had a destroyer named after them. Despite naval policy stipulating that siblings could not serve in the same military unit, brothers George, Francis, Joseph, Madison, Albert refused to serve in the Navy unless they were posted to the same unit. The ship known as the Atlantic-class light cruiser was found more than 4,000 meters below the surface, resting on the floor of the ocean. We certainly didn't plan to find the Juno on St. Patrick's Day. The, va- the variables in the search are just too great, said Robert Kraft, director of subsea operations for Allen. We're dealing with an environment out here that's very harsh. It's thousands of meters deep, and it's very unpredictable. We're putting you, you know, a lot of electronics and high voltage down there in very deep water and seawater where it shouldn't belong. There's always... So that always presents challenges. An autonomous underwater vehicle dispatched by Allen's expedition ship, the Petrel, confirmed the wreckage was indeed the Juno after video recording by the underwater vessel was analyzed by experts, experts aboard the Petrel. As the fifth commanding officer of the USS, the Sullivan's DDG-68, a ship named after the five brothers, I am excited to hear that Allen and his team were able to locate the light cruiser USS Juno that sunk during the Battle of Guadalcanal said Vice Admiral Rich Brown, commander of Naval Surface Forces. The story of the USS Juno and the Sullivan brothers uh, and the epitome, oh my goodness, uh, demonstrates the service and sacrifice of our nation's greatest generation. According to information from Paul Allen, the USS Juno was the only active for a year prior to its sinking. In November 1942, the battle was short and brutal, and the ship split in two under torpedo fire, killing most of the men on board immediately. The Juno sank very quickly, reportedly within 30 seconds. In spite there being approximately 115 survivors, serious rescue effort was not initiated for several days, by which time only 10 men were rescued from the disaster. Expedition funded by Allen have resulted in discovery of USS Lexington, USS Indianapolis, USS Ward, USS Astoria, Japanese battleship Mashishi, and the Italian Second World War destroyer Archiliary. I probably got that a little slaughtered. So he's found quite a bit. How would you like to have that ROV, though? Those well, some... actually, it was uh, what he used down there was a autonomous uh-huh. type device, so we could it would do a pre-program and mm-hmm. in some cases map it by itself based on what it could see with its sonar. So yeah, I'd love to have one of those. Yeah. 
it, it's also interesting, though, how they phraseology on a lot of the items that were based on morale and trying to get the populace back in the war, you know, be back in there by bonds. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, they call it the famous U.S. warship. Why is it famous? It's only famous because it's famous for the Sullivan brothers who all died on it. They were all together on that boat for 10 months and 10 days before they were dead. The sicky part about this is three of them were, were immediately drowned, one the day after, meaning if uh, silence hadn't have been required on the aircraft circling, saying, oh, by the way, there's people down there, they would have started the search earlier. If they had started the search earlier, it's very possible they would not have had four or all five of the brothers dead. The other brother, the last one, lasted five days. Had they started the search earlier, perhaps that would not have been true. Of course, you know, you have your secrecy aspect. You don't want to broadcast bad news. Lots of variables. And again, warfare is just that. Well, it seems like they could have, in, you know, this is all backseat driving from, you know, 70 years later. Uh, they, it seemed like you could have come up with some sort of code to, I mean, because the Japanese sunk it, so they know they sunk it. You could have had something that would have identified, hey, Let's come out here and do some searching or that there's a need of searching. But Well, it's a combat situation. They're not the only vessels in the area. You got a loose submarine. I, I can understand a lot of it and how they did actually, my understanding is get some of the survivors is with amphib aircraft, which is what they normally use to spot where the people at. Let's go down and pick them up. That's how Bush got picked up. Okay. You know, an amphibian. But it, it's odd about that. It, the other part I thought was interesting, sort of, was that you would have thought after that, you know, you'd never have kinfolk have that same issue, five killed. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, two years later, they had four brothers killed. <laughs> Not in the Navy, though. Yeah. And one was in the Army, one was in the Marines, two were in the Air Force. They all died within six months in different areas of the service. Yeah. One got killed by a tree, didn't say how. One was killed in Italy, one was killed on a bombing raid, one was wounded seriously in a bombing raid and passed 17 days later. And Sullivan's were five, and the second most was the group, uh, got their names here for a second. I know I had it somewhere. I can't find it. Anyway, there's another group. Their family had four, and they were separated. Oh, it's Borgs, B-O-R-G-S-T-R-O-M. Yeah, within six months. So it shows you war as hell. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we were fortunate that we did not have a lot of action on U.S. soil because it could have been the other way where, you know, you're losing whole families to bombing raids or explosions or troop movement. Uh, well, the, the multiple thousands upon thousands were killed on D-Day. Yes, yes. You know, that reminds you back in the Civil War days where we've had days in the Civil War that that many were killed in one battle. Yes. You just can't fathom that. It's hard. No, no, you just look look at, you know, I live in a small town. Imagine the population, the whole town being gone in a day. And that's... Yeah, it'd be interesting had you had uh, cell phones and uh, videos and YouTube at the time, you know, what the uh, outcry would have been. Yeah. Well, now we have one article from, I believe it's down in Australia. They're talking about buried treasure, scuba divers scouring rivers for rare collectibles. And as we know, since it's one of the, our pastimes up here, is finding bottles. Over the past four-year, Newcastle-based Tony Strazali and Paul Serenga have amassed an enormous collection of rare collectibles by scuba diving under old bridges and wharves that once dotted the countryside. The area is lucrative because Victoria Hotel is behind us, and old steamships used to pull up at the wharves 
that were long that were lined along the banks here. So the blokes loading the boats, children hanging around back every day, drank their drinks here, and often threw the bottles into the river. And uh, they go on and talk about it. That this is pretty much stuff that we we talk about all the time. But I just wanted the opportunity to go and look at the the bottles, uh, like the whiskey. Was that whiskey bottles? The wonky black glass bottles sometimes referred to as pirate bottles, date back to the early 1800s. I've, I've found bottles like that, but I don't think ours were anywhere near that old. Uh, and then the clay bottles from the 1800s. Are you talking about the, the glass ones on the front picture, yeah. or are you talking about the ones at the bottom? The, the ones up towards the top. Uh, okay, it, the top ones are the, the colorful ones? No, not the, not the colorful ones. The ones just a little bit farther down. Below the guys. Yeah, it says uh, wonky black glass bottles. Right. Those are going to, if you look at the crown tops on them, those mm-hmm. are corkers. And yep. you can tell a lot of those are old because they're not mold. The one on the right looks like it could have been a shoulder mold with a regular neck. Those are not glob tops. So, well, the one on the left looks like a glob top, which would make it a little older. You know, reversing it, looking at the bottom, you'd want to see if it had a pommel mark, which would be an indicator of a fire blown or, you know, air blown over the fire, which would give the age. Uh, we found similar to that, but not same age i don't believe for this one yeah and if you go down below it you'll be looking at the stoneware mm-hmm. and yeah, the ceramic yeah the and, clay ones right and like uh john for example found a nice one last year that looked like the one on the right except it wasn't crooked mm-hmm. and that was from uh, i think one one of those was from ireland or something and it was dated back to the early 1800s 1850s 1840s wow. and some of the bottles we have got though are from or not from butter embossed from overseas uh, a lot of the water ones are yeah and well, those don't seem to be embossed there but uh we do get the embossed ones here yeah because you, you, you i mean niles is a there's potential to find stuff gosh as long as there have been people in the united states uh from from europe uh you're gonna there's potential to find it there so yeah their history goes back well 1850 is the heyday but you had travelers up and down that river for another 200 years before that yeah and if you look at the old maps uh if you're metal detected and stuff you can look where the old indian settlements were which were across you know of course along the riverbank because it's food water shelter mm-hmm. uh so you will find other items you'll find stone artifact plus fort miami or the fort and that's another 200 years yeah because it was kind of a, a trading route at one point in time it was a focal point yes yeah the, the east yeah, the, the, that the east side of Lake Michigan, the towns over here were bigger than Chicago, so we we had a little bit more traffic. It wasn't until we started having the western expansion that Chicago really started to take off. Yeah, if you go and dive over in Detroit area, they hang on a second. I think that's my guy talking. I hate that. <laughs> yeah, if you're in the Detroit area, especially down by the Raisin River, where it used to be a really nice dock and wharf, you can predate us by another seventy years. You'll find stuff seventy years older easier because they came there first before they came overland to start populating the Chicago area and then out west. Yeah. So bottles, that's one of those other things you can do when you're in the water. And safes and bicycles and storage. <laughs> and, and clean up a little bit of trash while you're at it. Yes. And speaking of stuff that <laughs> floats on the beach, this next article is a mysterious sea creature washes up on a Georgia beach. man from Wycross, Georgia, has been left searching <laughs> Is scratching, searching his head, scratching his head after he discovered a Loch Ness type thing washed up on the beach while he was out with his son. Jeff Warren said he was found the strange creature after going boating at Wolf's Island National Wildlife 
Refuge in Golden Isle, Georgia. He initially thought the animal was a dead seal, but upon closer inspection, he saw it resembled something from prehistoric times. The mysterious creature, which had already been uh, devoured by birds on the beach, stretched from about five foot and appeared to have an elongated neck. Warren recorded the creature and spoke about it at a nearby Skipper's Fish House, where he was told of a legendary of a legend called Alti or Altahama, the local equivalent of Loch Ness monster, who was said to roam the sea in the area. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, offered an alternative explanation. According to director Dan Ash, many sea animals have been, have a way of decomposing. that makes them resemble uh, a dinosaur. Uh, he said that they have been examples of 30 foot long basking sharks decomposing such a way. Look as a long neck and a small head in a similar way to a prehistoric creature. The U S fish and wildlife service has been unable to sufficiently determine what the creature Warren found on the Georgian beach is. There was similar confusion last September in the wake of hurricane Harvey, they found a mysterious fang creature walked up in the beach in a Texas city. According to biologist and eel specialist Dr. Kenneth Ty, it is likely that the creature was a fang-toothed snake eel or a garden or conger eel, as all three of these species occur off Texas have large fang-like teeth. So, yeah, to, all uh, I know, the pictures of those, they're very, very ugly. Yeah. Well, you take you take half the flesh off any creature that already kind of has a, a crate of uh, a jawline. And uh, it just accentuates that. And it seems like, we, the, like, what was it, Plegosaurus? Yeah, Peleosaurus, like. which, is, which is what they had up above that I was getting caught up on. You know, it's like yeah, if that's, I, that's what it really looked like, though. It does. So, I mean, we're, we're getting to the point now where they could somebody could take a sample and do a DNA test and probably tell you, but you know, that, that just takes money. Maybe that's what Noah should be doing, DNA tests for all these, these viral creatures that are found on the beaches. We have uh, what I thought was a pretty nice article from uh, Boating Magazine, BoatingMag.com, and they had five scuba diving safety must-haves, and they list them as both visual and audio devices that will help keep you safe while scuba diving. And uh, what they had done is, uh, this is the sister publication to ScubaDiving.com, and the first one they, they had on their list is the Nautilus Marine Rescue GPS. Uh, the waterproof Nautilus GPS broadcasts a digital man-over signal with GPS coordinates to any boat within 34 miles equipped with an AIS-enabled VHF radio. Open the cap, press the blue button, pop off the retainer to unfurl the 9-inch antenna, hold the red button for 5 seconds. It's uh, $199, and you can get one from NautilusLifeline.com or your local dive shop. I believe this is one that several dive shops have started to carry now. Also, your marine equipment suppliers. Yeah, Wolf's does have a, a couple of varieties, as I recollect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you're going to be diving, especially a lot of us who do solo diving, even in the river and you're going to be someplace there's nobody else, that's not a bad idea, especially the ones that give you the mounts off the satellites Yeah, because then they know exactly where you are. If you're ever thinking about doing a boat dive solo, this is something that you definitely should have. I don't think it mitigates all the risk, but at least if you make a few bad decisions, this may be something that can help save you. And the next item, which I also agree with, is the Dan Signaling Sausage, bright orange and nearly eight inches wide. This tube is visible in the daylight from a half mile away in our test, thanks to a two-inch wide vertical reflective strip that flashes in the sun. As a mesh pouch that can hold emergency supplies like a light in a mirror, seventy uh, not seventy dollars, eighty dollars, and you can get one at dan.org forward slash store. 
Uh, and again, those and are I, all. I, I will recommend that as a good one. I've got one of those. I've got several other sausages that are nothing compared to that. Yes. And if you've been out in any kind of chop, not even, I mean, we're not talking wave action like in the ocean, but you get three or four foot of chop, those little ones don't work. You right. want that sucker that's going to be way up there, and you want the ones that inflate. You do not want the ones that are open pocket because it takes half the depth in the water yes. to get them to stand up, which is right over your head. Right. And the ones, the ones that have the open pocket, if, if you see a plane coming, you can hold this one up and wave it around, and it's still going to remain inflated. The other ones, you do that, and they'll just flop over like a limp sausage. Right, and you just put your strobe light in that little net pocket at the top. You've increased your ability to be found by yes. multiple. And, and that's the same thing with the mirror. You know, they mentioned about a mirror going up there that can help be seen. And now, would that mirror would a mirror also help it be picked up on radar a little bit? Depends. Uh, we've taken uh, when we're out there a lift in Sheboygan area. Uh, mm-hmm. I take a five foot pole with my dye flag when I'm out there grubbing, and on it we have put those mylar streamers, the metal ones. Those suckers just glimmer in the, in the light like crazy. Ah, and yes. then we've taken CDs, just got to have, you know, have two of them, cut them in half, not half, half, but quarter through to the hole, put them together. So you got that fourfold, mm-hmm. hole, put it to the top. Now you got a radar reflector yeah. and a good catches the light. So that uh, Dan signal signaling sausage. So uh, again, that's an item. If you're ever going to be out in a boat away from uh, shore, you certainly want to have one of those because if you, even if you have a boat, uh, if you come up a ways from the wreck and the captain can't get quite to you and the waves start picking up and chopping, uh, you want to make it as easy as possible for them to find you because they want to find you, pick you up, and then get back on the shore if the weather is turned. Uh, then they have a Tektite strobe 3500, emergency strobe as a full 360-degree coverage, so you don't have to aim it to be spotted during the test. The strobe was clearly visible a mile away and became brighter as the sun set. The Tektite says 3C batteries burn for 100 hours on our on a flash, ours was going like new after 70 hours. That's $89.95, and they say that's available from tech-tight.com. And a strobe light is, is a good idea. I don't know about this particular one, but multiple are fine. If you're doing night dives, it's nice to have one that you would attach uh, to your valve on your tank so that you know divers behind you can spot you, and then they have something stowed away that if you're, again, uh, get lost and need to be found you can put on it and then the now i was gonna say that works really good during day especially at night when they say a mile when i'm at two thousand feet i can see many many miles yeah and if you got a strobe it's amazing what i can find or see from that altitude so when that rescue helicopter or aircraft sucking strobe can really help you out a lot yeah and something else that i like uh is that uh, bob our uh, zodiac boat uh driver captain uh, who also does rebreathing, rebreathing. He rebreathes a lot. Uh, who's a rebreather diver on his boat? He has a strobe that he slides down the anchor line, so it's on the bottom near the anchor, and that's going. And that can be handy uh, when you're just trying to get a perspective. A lot of times, the visibility isn't good enough to where you can necessarily see your anchor line. And uh, if you know, we usually will run lines, but just that confidence of seeing that strobe off in the distance, flashing by the anchor. Generally, he has that maybe five or six feet off the ground, so it's got more visibility. Yes, yeah. You used to find the anchor so you could find it, but it's a lot better Mm -hmm. six to ten feet off, and that's where he puts it. Because that's where you bail out is to your extra tank. Yeah, and and what he does is he's got a, 
like a retainer on the line so that it slides down the line because that goes in the water before he goes down. And it also is a nice uh, visual cue as you're coming down your anchor line, especially in the lower visibility. When you start seeing that, that strobe flash, you know, it gives you an idea how close you are to the bottom. The end is near. Yes. Uh, and then they have the Dive Alert Plus V2 Air Horn. A foghorn-ish honk is clearly audible from a mile away. Easy to install clips between your hose and inflator. It has an ear-splitting loud sound, $89.95. And that's divealert.com. So this must be the one where you add it to your inflator, and it's just another button on your inflator. So instead of just inflating your BC, you hit this, and it, it makes a air horn sound. I think Bob used to, or uh, Jim used to have one of those, and that little sucker, it'll burst your eardrums if you're in a horn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, they're, they're very loud. Uh, but by I mean, the same token, not everybody wants to have that. But everybody should have a very high-quality whistle on yes. their BC. Yeah, I, I usually have mine. You can whistle a lot longer than you can yell. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've, I've got one on my uh, BC along with my dive knife. Uh, the, the downside for the air horn one, and I don't know if there's a way of manually uh, blowing it, but if you <laughs> run out of air, uh, it, it, won't, it will cease to work. And then they have the, trivet, the Trident Fold-Up Divers Alert Flag. Collapsible flag can easily be to- stowed in a buoyancy compensator pocket or attached to a D-ring, so it's out of the way when it's not needed, uh, Twenty five ninety five, and that one's available from leisurepro.com. Also, any of your local dive shops will have similar things. Trident's uh, one of the uh, common brands that you see in, in many dive shops. Fold-up diver's alert flag. Is that like a diver down flag is what he's referring to? I'm not sure because I, I take my safety sausage first, but, I mean, yeah, that's a small little item, but I'm not sure how you use that. Yeah, because you want to get something up high, so I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're diving and you need a flag, you'd already have the flag out. Or if you had your safety sausage, that's going to be key item. Are you visible? Yes. And then we have one more article. This one's a short one, but uh, you know, it seems at this time of the year, we usually get some sort of announcement, and we have Michigan Shipwreck Hunters find a schooner that sank in 1873. The remains of a schooner that sank in Lake Michigan during the storm, the Lizzie Throop. Is that Throop? Throop? Yeah. Throop was found in 280 feet or 85 meters of water along the western Michigan coastline, 15 miles or 25 kilometers northwest of the city of South Haven. And this was announced by Michigan Shipwreck Research Associate this past week. The vessel set sail from Muskegon, Michigan on October 16th, 1873 in a lumber run to Chicago, but sank after beginning to leak during a squall. Uh, Valerie Van Heest, the Shipwreck Associate Director, uh, reported this to MLive.com. Two of the 16 crewmen died when the two-masted, 86-foot-long, 26-meter-long schooner went down. We realized now that the deck and masts floated ashore with the survivors while the hull went to the bottom, Van he's told WZZM-TV. Side-scan sonar images showed the sunken vessel in the lake bottom and other footage obtained by divers reveal the devastation the ship suffered when its deck separated from its hull. The Lizzie Throop was built in 1849 from wood milled at one of Grand Haven's area's earliest sawmill was owned by prominent city resident Nathan Throop and was named after Caroline Elizabeth Throop, who died in 1869. The ruins of the tent shipwreck. The ruins are the tent shipwreck the associates the <coughs> that the association has found during its ongoing search for passenger plane that crashed in Lake Michigan nearly 68 years ago. The Northwest Orient Flight 
2501 crashed June 23, 1950, killing all 58 aboard the DC-4 prop liner. The association partnered 14 years ago with author Clive Cussler and his National Underwater Marine Agency to search for the aircraft. That search resumed this spring with the help of oceanographer Gregory Bush, who will bring to the quest the latest sonar equipment and unique searching and a unique search methodology van, he said. We feel more confident than ever the discovery of Flight 2501 could happen in 2018. Was this announced at their uh, uh, show that MSRA put on? I do not know, actually. I just saw it in the paper, and I flipped it out wrong. Yeah. I think, did that happen? I'm I'm so so far lost on dates. I'm betting that must have, have happened, because it, it seems like... I thought that, that was this weekend, actually. Is that this weekend? I thought it was. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, we can... MichiganShipwrecks.com is the website. If I get both hands, I can type quicker. March 24th. March 24th. Yep, Saturday. That's uh, this week. Oh, that's this week. So may, yes. maybe they're they're announcing this a little early. Uh, well, actually, it is because they're going to be talking about the uh, whaleback Clifton ships that go bump in the night. Third item is the Lizzie Trope, yep. and then uh, Moran, and a true story of Baby Jane. So if you haven't gotten your tickets, and I don't know if they're any more available, you're going to want to get those because they will sell out. There are tickets normally available at the door, but once they hit capacity, they're done. It's a new location this year. It's at the Jack H. Miller Center, uh, 221 Columbia Avenue on the campus of Hope College in Holland, Michigan. You go to the website, michiganshipwrecks.org, you can find out some additional information. It's always worth going and watching. I hope they have a good turnout for that. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking, because normally what happens after that show, we'll get something. It looks like this year they teased it a little bit early. Or maybe it got leaked. Maybe this was uh, somebody had leaked the information. I, I, I knew. Think. <laughs> you don't think <laughs> so? Sure no, nah, they must have uh, had too many details not to have, you know, had that published. Oh, well, yeah, it was certainly was a, it was a, this article was done with a formal press release. But I'd, I had heard from some of our divers who, who, do go diving with them that there was some stuff that they were not allowed to talk about so i can assume that this was one of those items so, but again 280 feet not too many of our guys are going to no go no you, the, you, if you're a hardcore tech diver and you just want to say you went down but like like you said mac uh i haven't seen photos yet that'll probably be shown at the show this weekend and we'll we should see a couple posts and articles coming out in the next few weeks and we'll we'll see what it looks like but i imagine it's going to be in pretty rough shape so congratulations to them. Um, glad they keep looking. Now, they had mentioned somebody different, so they didn't say Ralph Wilbanks. Is he still involved with the search? or It does not appear this year because I believe they're using some, some more current uh, equipment that they normally don't have. Yeah. And he's got some idea of a different kind of search pattern to use, which may be indicative of the type of gear he has. Yeah. Well, so I, it sounds like they're elevating their game. Yeah, well, we've we've kind of speculated because I'm gonna. They they haven't shared with anybody the search pattern that they've already done, but you you kind of have to believe any place they thought it was already going to be, they've already looked over. So it's either at this point you missed it, you know, did it get between paths of mowing the lawn, or uh, is it buried under the bottom and you just didn't pick it up, or are you going too quick when you searched? So you almost need to step it up a little bit and bring in some equipment. Uh, sub-bottom profiling is, is becoming more column, common now, so maybe that's some of the equipment as well. 
So hopefully they do find it to be uh, interesting to see where that is. And then also we had talked a little bit of before the show is the Chikora, which is one that we're, that we have great interest in finding. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting next to some plans for that, that ship. Uh, I would, I would like to see that one found. But I'd like to find it. Well, that, that too, you know, I, I wouldn't mind finding it. Just got to get out there and look. So that does it for scuba news. And that brings up the next topic of scuba diving. Um, so I understand that we're getting to that time of year where people are getting out into the Great Lakes. Nobody has been out uh, beyond the beaches and the piers that I'm aware of. But there's some discussions that uh, this weekend may be the weekend that uh, some of our uh, group gets out on the Great Lakes. Um, I understand people have gotten dives in the last last week. Well, they do have the thrill of the chill, and that started today, or, yeah, on day Thursday. started today, and they had people, and that was at uh, Pawpaw Lake, because you've got a nice sandy entrance, a nice dock or pier you can put your gear on and load up so you're not hurting your back or anything. Uh, visibility wasn't the greatest, but they had decent vis. I think they said 10 feet, and temperature 42 to 46, something like that. Uh, Lake 16 has been dove. Visibility down to the platform was 6 to 10, marginal. You got down to the bottom of the anchor chain, that's in 60-odd feet plus, and you needed your flashlight. Plus, if you had a leaky glove, you weren't going to be down there. Need a little, little chilly? <laughs> I was still in the low 30s. Yeah, Lake 16 is cold, and when you get that conditions where there's more visibility at the top and the bottom, it's a rough. It's rough. Uh, yeah, Gull Lake has opened up. Uh, SAS Group was out there the other day, uh, Wednesday, because uh, they started their Wednesday dives. Um, they've got a lot of little items going on. And I believe, I, I'm trying to remember if it's uh, H2O or the other group, they're having a pool party oh. at uh, Bridgman nice. in April. And I'll probably get some more details on that. But if you hadn't got wet for a while and you want to check out that dry suit to see if it really is dry or yeah. get out the wet suit to see if it's still going to fit because they have a habit of shrinking over the winter. We know how bad that is. Yeah, uh, well, give you an opportunity to check it out in semi-warm water. Yeah, I'm hoping mine is expanded during the winter. So we'll, we'll see Don't if that... Don't count on it. Don't count on it? I, I understand that if you seal the wrist cuffs and the feet cuffs on a, on a single and the neck and then blow it up, you can sometime make them expand. <laughs> well, I'm I'm hoping that I've reduced a little bit since uh, the the holiday season. So I'm I'm hoping I'm, I, I can fit in my dry suit just a little bit better. It still uh, zips. <laughs> well, one of the articles we posted in the newsletter and we discussed at the dive meeting on Tuesday was it pays to have a little bit of fat on you <laughs> if you're going to wind well, it, up in the It, it does. Uh, as, as an old yeah. wetsuit ice diver, I know that that uh, little bit of uh, thermal protection, a.k.a. blubber, uh, does help you have a little bit more It makes a ability. big difference yeah, yeah. on keeping the hypothermia down. Yeah. Especially when it's a little cold, but not like ice diving. Well, I, I assure you, I, I still have plen- plenty of fat layer remaining, but I've been trying to trim it down, get get ready for spring. Uh, you know, get in the get in some better shape because yeah, okay. don't don't want to be a statistic. You go in the water and then you you have a, a nice heart attack, and they're going, "Hey, that that diving killed another one." So we we think we may have some people getting their boats out and heading out this weekend then. Yep, uh, the feedback was, I think, uh, even Kevin was, I believe it was Kevin, talked about his boat. All he did is put a battery in, turned over the engine, added some water to it, and bingo. Excellent. And that's what you want. Yeah. As long as it's not going to freeze, you're good. Yeah, you don't want it to and freeze. I and... was looking. 
to go yeah. out with his. So yeah, make sure you got some some fresh gas and uh, and it and it's always this these early dives early in the season. We usually like to hit some of the shallower wrecks. Are they talking to Havana? Actually, somebody was talking. Uh, I might have been John talking about uh, the South Bend. Oh, you know. oh yeah, yeah. I like the 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 South Bend off of Michigan City. No, no, that's the one that's inland on the lake. Oh, the, the Diamond Lake. Yeah, that's a that's your traditional. Uh, yeah, that that's not a Lake Michigan dive. That's a uh, uh, Diamond Lake dive, which is off uh, Cass Cass County. Cass County. So that that's a good one. That is that is traditional. Uh, one that we would hit. It's a good warm up for the boats. Yeah. Because uh, you can paddle your boat back to the dock. It's not going to be fun, but uh, it's a, it's and a small. And you're close enough to the shoreline that if you have to, you can get to the shore and say, "Hey, can somebody haul me home?" <laughs> yeah, you, you can knock on somebody's back porch and and you know have them call if you can't get cell phone reception. Uh, but that's a good one. That's a that's uh, Bob always likes to do that one first, and then the following weekend, if things hold out, then it's usually a Havana dive. So. Uh, well, we, nice. We're smart, though. We, we start out shallow in the mm-hmm. inland, work our way back out, and start, like you said, on the Havana, maybe the Rockaway, and you start working the distance up. So by the time it gets warm, surface-wise, you can start hitting the big ones like the Ann Arbor 5. And if you still want to hit it at 120, you do that one, hit the props 130. And then if you've really got your stuff together, down to the bottom, what, 160? Yeah. Five. And, and what's nice is you're working two things. You're working... You know, getting yourself in condition and your gear in shape, slowly going deeper, doing deeper and deeper wrecks. But then also that first uh, big lake dive of the year, it's nice to have other boats come out with you because uh, you can have it turn over and maybe even make it out past the pierhead. But, uh, you know, a 15-minute run up and down the coast will surely get some of the gremlins out or find them if they happen to be there. So that's the nice thing about the Havana's. Even though I wouldn't want to swim the shore, you're you're close enough to shore where you don't feel completely out there. You don't want to do your first uh, boat dive of the season uh, driving, you know, six miles out of Lake Michigan. And I always like having a second boat because you never know when you're going to have an issue that you can't start or they can't start, or if you have an issue with a yeah. diver. And yeah, that, you that, want that extra support. Yeah, that battery's been sitting in there, and it might be enough to turn it over once, but maybe you know, your points aren't putting a good charge back on the battery or whatever. But good planning, you take yes. two batteries. Yeah, yep. Have redundancy as much as you can. Absolutely. Uh, communicate with people on shore, have your plan, you know, let people know when you're going to be going, where you're going, and when you're going to be back. Yeah, it's nice to have an operating marine radio, too. <laughs> that would be good. And if you take your cell phone, make sure it works. I mean, you got coverage. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate in the south, the south side of the Lake Michigan. It seems that, that you've got quite a bit of coverage on the lake. Let's see. Did you have uh, anything you wanted to talk about? Did you have anything? Uh, well, we... Actually, I did, and I'm going to start with a downer first. Oh, okay. no. Okay. You ready? Yep. Okay. One year ago, over a 4th of July weekend, Alexander Anderson, 13, her brother, uh, Braven Anderson, 8, were still uh, swimming near a private dock in Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri when they started to scream. Parents went through the aid, but by the time the siblings were pulled from the lake, they were unresponsive. Both children were pronounced dead after being transported to a nearby hospital. Two hours later, Noah Winstead, 10-year-old boy, died in a similar manner at Cherokee Lake near Knoxville, Tennessee. According to the local press, seven other swimmers were injured near where Noah died. These were not drowning victims. In all cases, 120-volt AC, alternating current, 
leakage from a nearby boat and dock, different cases, electrocuted or incapacitated the swimmers underwater, and they drown. The little-known and often unidentified killer is called electric shock drowning. Now, again, it takes minute current to do that. So what is exactly, what does that mean? Lethal amounts in fresh water are measured in milliamps or thousandths of an amp. The key item that reason I bring that up as a diver and I'm working, one of the areas I love to go to are dock and piers because that's where people drop stuff. If you go to a big marina, all the marinas often have power supplied for shore power for the boats. If you go to some of them like now and you're going to dive from the boat right there, you'll notice there's a big section where the ice isn't. That's because they have bubblers, meaning they have underwater pumps, air pumps, circulating water to keep the ice from freezing around the dock, which means electrical. Item they're talking about is always be aware either as a diver, swimmer, or otherwise that any place that has electrical outlets around it, such as those areas, are potential hazards. Interesting part is you may be pretty good, you know, protected, but if you then grab the ladder of the boat to get back on it or touch the prop and you're leaking voltage from those, you could get yourself killed. Maybe the shock didn't kill you, but it stunned you enough that you spit out the regulator and started sucking water. Yeah, when you get electrocuted, you lose a lot of control of your muscles and things can happen. Well, a gradient of two volts, AC volts can do that to you. It'll generate enough milliamps or current to do that. Um, so they're basically saying if you are on a boat, it's really a good thing. And, and generally, when I'm thinking of boats with power, it's those bigger than our little runabouts that don't have a stove, yes. refrigerator, air conditioner, electronic stuff that's backed up by AC with a battery backup. So around those areas, you've got to be really cautious because you're diving a cattle boat. I'm willing to bet they got some high power stuff on that boat. So the ladder prop part of the boat, you touch it. And if they don't have it grounded properly or ground fault interrupters, mm-hmm. power interrupters, and, and most places now have that, but most places don't have a, a good method of how often did you check and make sure it worked. Yeah, you have, you have to check those. When's the last time you checked your GFI in your bathroom? You're supposed to check them every month. I probably haven't checked them. You have them, but do you check them? No. If you haven't been, you might really want to do that. The second part they were saying is people say, well, how come it doesn't happen to me in the salt water? And it can happen in the salt water, but normally doesn't because the fuel current conductivity path is different. You would have to have a higher voltage and be playing with the power source in the ground in salt water. We're, we're talking freshwater, docks, feeling a little tingly somewhere. It's like, wow, that's a little weird, where it didn't feel tingly on that one. Electric, mm-hmm. words of wisdom for the day. Yeah. Uh, so what is the, is there just something to avoid? Is it just better to avoid the marinas? Or? Well, that's what they're saying there, but, you know, I don't because, you know, we hit the lakes. What is in the lake? You've got docks everywhere we go. Right. And we do go around them because that's where you find stuff. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, we come up and we look around a little bit. If there's nothing hanging in the water, the chances are, or probably not. But again, do you want to ch- take a chance on that? Probably. Yeah, the, the, you, you certainly don't. Uh, now, is there? Do they say anything about a safe distance, or is it just no, most? No, they don't. Yeah, no, they don't. But it is an interesting fact. Here's a factoid for you: If you're if, like lightning, let's talk lightning for a second. If you're out there and a storm comes up, what do you do? Well, it's recommended if you have air, go 20 feet to 30 feet down. And thunderstorms normally blow through in 15 to 20 minutes. So if you're in the middle of something really active, you come up 20 minutes later, chances are you will have got the most of the storm away. It doesn't mean you can't get hit. I mean, you're towing no. a lightning rod. You're the highest object on the lake. 
right? Yeah. Key items there is when lightning strikes and hits the body of the water, it dissipates laterally, not down. That's why if you go down 20 feet, you're going to be in pretty good shape. But it goes out laterally. Now, you can't say 20 feet is going to be my circle from the strike because then you're going to get yourself fried. But it's nice to know it doesn't go all, you know, through the lake. So key items there, you don't want to be flat on the surface because the lightning strike is dissipated in a flat, you know, in the flat part of the water. So in this case, going deep is going to save your bucket, you know. Yeah. Say. If you are in a lightning and you did get struck or you absorbed the charge, they said, believe it or not, you can get a positive charge on your body, meaning if your body is glowing, <laughs> uh, your best thing to do then is swim, and let's say you're on the surface, you swim to the, the shoreline with your head. So when your head touches shore, if it knocks you out, because if it shocks you, at least you'll be shallow and your head will be out of the water. Now, that part I could not prove is 100%, but that was one of the items that was talked about, worst case scenarios, ifs. Right. That's what, and that's what I would. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been caught in a storm, which is usually poor planning, but I have. When you're down there, 10, 11 feet grubbing, and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're looking for the guy with the flash cube because who's taking my picture? (laughs) And then you feel the the, the water vibrate. That's a real good clue that something happened near you. Yeah. I, I, I do like to dive during the rain. I, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, I, it's a different experience. It's it's not quite a night dive, but yeah, it's it's almost feel like you're upside down. Uh, you know, seeing seeing the the splashes of the raindrops in the water, and uh, it's yeah, it's you know, why why be up getting wet when you're above the surface when you can get wet below? So I've had some really good dives in rain, not lightning. <laughs> yes, not yeah, storm. yeah, lightning. I don't think I've I've been on the lake where we've seen lightning in the distance and said, you know what, we need to call it, and that goes back to our. Uh, you know, having a, a dive recall to get people back to the boat. Because uh, it, it happens on, on Lake Michigan and, and a lot of the Great Lakes, it can move in pretty quick. Oh, yeah. We were on a dive in uh, out of um, New Buffalo. No, no. It was out of uh, Michigan City toward Chicago. And we got up just as they were getting ready to cut the anchor. I mean, cut it, not haul up the anchor. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what the freak squall is. We got hit by a freak squall. Yeah. And we also got hit by lightning. We took our radios out. I mean, it went from nice and calm to monster seas. And you know how you get those little flag railings made of mahogany uh, with a flag on the side of it? Uh-huh. The wind was so bad, it broke that sucker. Oh, wow. <laughs> People on the dock waiting for us when we came in because they couldn't contact us by radio. They saw the squall hit. People out there, the, the wall, you could see a squall line. And they thought we'd sunk. Wow. <laughs> those brag about, you know, I survived. <laughs> yeah, I, I survived the squall. So, yeah, there's a lot of, the, we, we dive the shipwrecks, and that just reminds you that uh, you don't want to be the next one. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's tuning in and downloading the program. We certainly appreciate it. If you're a fan of the show, why not put a pin in the fan map? Go to our website, www.scubobsess.com, and look around, and there is a link to the fan map, and you can put a pin there and see if there are any other divers in your area who uh, are also fans of the program. If you like the show, tell a friend, and we would certainly love a five-star review on whichever platform you're listening to the program on. While you're at our website, we'd certainly appreciate uh, support for the program. Help us continue to put it on the air and improve the the quality, both audio-wise and interest-wise. I'm I'm sorry, Mac, did I lose you? Breaking up again. Ah, but but everybody, 
everybody who's uh, listening is is hearing it fine because I, I'm recording it local. Uh, so head on over to our website, www.scubobsess.com. Click on the Patreon link and uh, help us keep the show on the air. Do you have anything you want to plug before we head on out of here? Not catching, I'm not catching 80% of what you're saying. I'm, I'm giving you the uh, location of the, the gold in Lake Michigan. You didn't hear any of that, so <laughs> I don't have anything. Every, everybody, everybody so at home is, is, is going to laugh. But it'll it'll be what is it? I think what Easter is the same as April Fool's Day. <laughs> yes, I have fun with those eggs with the kids. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, we didn't talk about it on the show, but have you seen the uh, you know the guys who do the the Curse of Oak Island show? Oh yeah, we talked about that too. About they are uh, trying to get the people interested in the Confederate gold. Yeah, Confederate gold and. Uh, that one looks to be interesting. I, I haven't seen, I've only saw a couple episodes of it, but uh, I, I think they're overreaching a little bit, but certainly hope that the, something comes out of the show. When you've got the money to embellish it and somebody's going to finance you, go for it. Oh, yeah, you're getting some, some FaceTime. The personalities on the show, which is what makes The Curse of Oak Island so good, is that you just like everybody who's on it. You know, you don't, you don't see a lot of uh, ego and personality that, you know, that's abrasive. And that's kind of the same avenue that this one's going, is that you, you genuinely like the people and you want to see them succeed. So hopefully they find what they're looking for and, and they're making it interesting. You're not whole time again, so I don't know if the other people can hear you well or not. I just thought I'd mention that again. No. Well, I I think we probably need to, to finish up here. So are you ready? You there? Hello, Mac. Do we lose you? It's really quiet in here. <laughs> yeah. the, the chat room says they're hearing me pretty well. They're saying maybe it's you who's cutting it out, <laughs> which, would, which would be unusual because I think your connection's about five times better than mine. They're saying I'm cutting out and you're doing good. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Can you hear me still? Or mm-hmm. Yeah. For those that, uh, that are home who are wondering how, how fun this is, one thing about the way the Internet works is uh, it might not even be your connection to the Internet. It's these interconnection between the carriers. So if you're on Comcast and you have somebody else who's on AT&T or Verizon, those networks uh, have to communicate back and forth between each other. And in certain conditions, uh, those can become constrained. So you can have a gigabit pipe, but you know, this little congestion between the networks can cause things to go crazy. And I have a feeling that's what's going on here, especially since uh, I'm I'm sounding pretty good to some people. Mac isn't, and Mac's got them a much larger connection than I do as I'm stalling. Uh, let me, let me know when you're, you're back, Mac. Hello. <laughs> Hello. You there? I just had a power glitch. I just had, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. I just had a power glitch. I don't know what's going on. Oh, and I don't know why my computer's still up. Huh? So maybe there's uh, something going on in your neighborhood. It's at ice rink next door. <laughs> it's, they're taking all the power to keep that ice going. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be quiet, and I'll let you do the joke of the night, and then uh, that way I'm not going to break up and okay. continue to say I can't hear you. <laughs> well, that, that's always the best part of the show. So here we go. Near a lake used by scuba divers was a dive shop. One day, a man walked in the shop carrying a cardboard box. He put the box on the counter and was greeted by an instructor. The instructor naturally asked what was in the box. The man didn't answer but opened the box and took out a miniature grand piano, then a miniature piano stool. And finally, a little man less than a foot tall who sat at the piano and started to play the most incredible music you ever heard. 
He's fantastic, said the instructor. Where did you get him? Well, said the customer, I've been diving in a lake when I saw this frog swimming in the middle of the lake all alone. At about 15 feet, he looked very fatigued. I took hold of the frog and ascended to the surface. To fo- the frog seemed very relieved, so I carried him to shore. When I put him down, and you're not going to believe this, the man said, the frog started to talk. He said he wasn't really a frog, but an unfortunate genie turned into a frog by a wicked fairy. Because he had never learned to swim, he wasn't doing well as a frog. But the best part of that, for saving his life, he agreed to grant me a wish. Well, being the attentive dive buddy I am, I noticed the frog having some difficulty equalizing when he surfaced, and it must have affected his hearing, because I clearly told him my wish, and that's how I got this 10-inch pianist. Did you get that? <laughs> Good night, Grace. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were just going to claim that you had a bad connection and didn't hear, the, hear that one. <laughs> Thank, isn't that the exit for Jim Durrani? Yeah, I, be, I think so. Alabash, wherever you are. <laughs> yes. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. I've been coming in now. I'm going to be watching this.